This is Supervised Learning, a podcast where the Merlin Mind team learns from experts in artificial intelligence, technology, and education. We hope you enjoy learning with us through these conversations with those who know. Time to learn. It's Emily and Kylie, I'm thrilled to have this conversation because it's I guess we just looked about two and a half years in the making, right, Kylie? Do you want to tell us? <laughs> we, we started with a strange email long, long, long time ago. Um, well, why don't you guys introduce yourselves, Kylie? Yeah, so, so my name is Dr. Kylie Pepler. I'm a professor of both informatics and education here at the University of California, Irvine. And, uh, you know, I, I do a lot of research at the intersection of new technologies and designing them uh, for high quality uh, teaching and learning experiences. And Emily. Great. My name is Dr. Emily Schindler, and I am the Assistant Director of Creativity Labs here. Um, and my background is in understanding how teachers learn with technology and in innovative environments. Um, and on this project, I got to do a lot of the data collection and research. So. Great. And for those of you listening who don't know exactly what we do, let's just kind of tell you the story of why, as a startup, trying yeah. to bring AI into education and do something that was very different, right? We wanted to say, how can you use a voice assistant to assist teachers in the orchestration of teaching, to control the tools they're using, let them walk around the classroom freely without being tethered to the laptop or to the device? How do we do that and do it right and make sure it actually helps? Well, we said, we should probably talk to experts, right? Like researchers who actually look at this stuff and understand what does technology do? What's it good for? What it's not good for? And how does it really help teachers? And then by extension, impact student and learning outcomes. So we kind of canvassed the world and found these incredible researchers at the University of California, Irvine in the creativity labs. And I sent a cold email to Kylie <laughs> two and a half years ago. And we, so maybe let's pause there and say, why does research matter? <laughs> why, why does it matter that we, that we do these things? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And, and you know, and I, I just want to say, when you walked in the doors in 2019 with this audacious idea, uh, you know, totally futuristic, like how are we possibly going to, you know, envision one device that's going to transform, uh, you know, the classroom experience? And so, uh, part part of we do, you know, part of what we do as researchers is that we we take um, we try to distill the learnings of the field and distill that into um, high quality theory. And this is, you know, what we do as learning scientists. And then we use that theory to inform the design. And so it's just really cool to be, um, you know, part of the parade and, and, and some of the early uh, inquiry that you had. And, and, you know, I remember back to that discussion, we were just kind of talking about sort of the guiding theory about sort of constructionism, about, you know, what would we uh, hope for in a device um, like what you were building and how, how, you know, how might you go about that design process uh, to inform that product? You know, I, I didn't know you were going to walk back, uh, you know, a few months later. Later and say, hey, let's work together. But that that was just a really exciting uh, proposition, especially. Um, Emily, you want to just talk a little bit more about like what you think about the the role of research and, and product development? Sure. I mean, for me, because my interest is in teachers and teaching, um, you know, I look at it from the point of view of, well, as a teacher, what what is available to you in terms of tools? And you know, there's just lots of kind of hinks in the system, um, you know, such as like teachers aren't the ones who are generally purchasing the technology. And so, um, but they are the people who have to use it every day. Um, and so I think in terms of, you know, closing the loop between 
the user and the uh, developer, I feel like research has a major role to play in that respect. Yeah, because we, you know, as we start to think about building, you know, ed tech and, and, and just building, building sort of the future of innovation and education, you know, that requires a lot of things that, that we're, we've been studying in, in academic realms, like how, how do we work together? What's that design process? Um, you know, so we have new processes in the field called research practice partnerships, where researchers are working more closely with teachers, but industry partners need that same kind of insight. Uh, we've got things called design-based research, where we take the theory we design in a local context and then we refine the theory and we refine the design and then we also have you know things around implementation research we call dbir so design-based implementation research and mm -hmm. so how do we prepare for scaling so you know what we know about about learning what we know about teaching what we know about design how do, how do we bring this together um because it's been you know kind of a silo happening we can't get good innovation out of academia uh you know a lot of a lot of industry partners have been um you know unable to to work with these with uh, researchers so how do we how do we actually start to design at this intersection which is it requires new new work processes new new ways of of working in the 21st century yeah, so are we the norm? Do most startups like us come and join forces with powerful academic researchers like yourselves and your institution to go make sure that the new technology that's coming out is going to be effective and do what it hopefully could do in a classroom? Absolutely not. You know, they, uh, you know, we, we rarely see it now. That doesn't mean we never see it. Right. right. Um, you know, we, we've worked with a lot of partners, uh, you know, over the years, you know, I, I got started uh, working with the MIT media lab team on the design and development of scratch. I've worked with Leah Bukley and spark fun on uh, refining a lot of the, um, the lily pad Arduino and the wearable technologies. Um, so we have a long history of working at this intersection. Uh, but, but a lot of times these are, um, you know, kind of few and far between um, experiences, and mostly they're they're kind of about scaling innovations that happen in academia out outside of academia. But that you know, from a you know, you look at, at the national level, those counts are just you know, it's less than one percent of academic projects that actually move out of the market, and I would say it's probably less than one percent of industry partners that actually partner with researchers. And so it's just a it's just a missed opportunity there. Right. I think there's good data out of Brookings, I believe, on that. Like less than 1% of ed tech companies are running these kinds of efficacy tests to see if it truly has impact on outcomes. Right. So, right. and you could almost like, so why did we do it? Yeah. <laughs> the, that's the, what I was going to just ask. Why, why yeah. did you guys decide uh, to do this? Uh, we, I mean, we had great leadership internally right across the team. It's a, it's a team of researchers, right? So, like our founders were all AI researchers who've spent their careers in IBM, in research labs, looking at, Let's create a theory and a hypothesis on how we can do something effective, and then let's go test it and rigorously prove if it works. And we had other great learning scientists and, and folks on the team uh, who you guys know, like Gus, who, who said, like, let's do it in the learning sciences like we've done in my past kind of uh, opportunities and places where I've worked at, at Hewlett Packard and other things like that. So we basically said, look, we're really trying to push the envelope here on what is possible with cutting edge artificial intelligence, voice control, and automation to save steps and help teachers use technology more effectively in classrooms. We have really clear hypotheses on why that matters. Why if you make it easier for teachers to use tools and simplify workflows and orchestrate what they're doing in simpler and less steps, that extra time is gonna be used productively and effectively and have outcome on students. 
But that's a lot of like in our minds three, four years ago, right? And so we said, you know what? Right, because it really matters. And if we work with the right people like yourselves and we test this and we work with schools and we work with teachers and we work with administrators, then when we move forward to go bring this to the market, there's not as much like we got to sell you something and you just have to take, like, believe it by faith. We can get right. to the point where it's like, oh, there's actually evidence behind this. You're not just selling me something. We wanted to show that this really works. So it's scary. I think uh, before this, you guys were asking me like, why is it scary? And if we're just very honest, right, as a startup, you're already kind of on life support, more or less. Like you're a temporary organization. You're not necessarily going to be around forever. You have to create something that really works to continue fulfilling that vision. And that means if you get data back from a research project like this that says, this product doesn't work, it doesn't have impact, it's not helpful, you have to course correct dramatically, which you might not have enough time left in the life of that company to do, right? So it's kind of a big, bold bet for us to say, we believe enough in this, we want to get it right, let's work with the right people, and let's prove that it works. And it wasn't all smooth sailing. You guys can talk more about this, but there are a lot of things that didn't work early on, and we worked together, and we made progress, and eventually, I think what we'll talk about today is there are good, strong signals that we're on the right path. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it, 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 that's a two-way street, right? You know, a lot of researchers um, don't want to get into, um, you know, working with industry partners because they, they A, can't, um, you know, we have to change a lot of what we do normally, right? So we've got to work at a faster pace. Right, we've got to think about things uh, like you said. It, you know, the the clock is ticking. Right, you know, we can't launch a product if we take too long, if we do too laborious of methods, if we if we uh, you know can't get the product to a, a state that that would be viable before before launching. Right, so um, so it's a lot of pressure. But I, I I would encourage researchers to to start to uh, start to develop the method and the approaches to being able to do this, right? And so there's a lot of trust, I think, that has to be built because, you know, you have to have those hard conversations. You got to, you know, kind of really invest. And so, you know, both sides, you know, this is... Um, you know, a phenomenal relationship in terms of in terms of uh, just having shared expectations about what it meant to be doing research and to, to be inviting us into the table on that. Um, but you know, we you know we've learned a lot from the games industry and other industries as well. Is that is that you know the um, you know typically a research project could take three to five years to find something. Right, that's just too slow. Yeah. You know, like no no product would ever launch. Right. And so you can have this this uh, perfect paradigm in your head, but uh, but at the end of the day, we need to get the evidence to administrators, to teachers, to make the right decisions. And most of the decisions they make is based on marketing. It's right. not based on actual value to the classroom. I mean, it, it is, um, you know, it, it's a whole industry sort of built on on marketing. And so, and once you get once you get um, you know folks invested in one platform, one approach, not because it's better, um, that they're resistant to changing. Right. Right. And, um, and most of the, you know, most of the evaluation is very thin, right? And it's usually done by the company itself. Um, and so there, there is no, no consistent kind of, you know, FDA for ed tech, you know, mm. there's no, there's no third party platform helping to make that decision. Um, uh, but I think what, you know, for companies that are trying to future proof themselves, having, you know, the firm foundation, if you get the product right, in the beginning, right? You know, the very first initial stages, then it's so easy to kind of build on those insights and kind of be moving in the right direction. If if you don't get those foundational layers, it's just really hard. You know, you, you end up either having to pitch the entire product or, you know, launch something new. Um, so it, it, 
I, you know, I, I think in the end, when we get these relationships right, you can save time, you can save money, um, and and uh, really have a clear value proposition to offer to schools. So before we jump into the meat of this conversation, what we actually researched, what we learned, yeah. let's just let's just kind of bring back like who were the participants. So you had Merlin Mind is the industry partner. That was the startup led by the former founders of the IBM Watson team who said, let's bring AI into education. Yeah. Then you had Kylie, Dr. Kylie Pepler, Dr. Emily Schindler, the UCI Creativity Labs. And then we also had another partner involved. Well, I guess at least two other groups of partners, right? We had the schools themselves, the administrators, right. the practitioners, the teachers, and then there was also Digital Promise. Can you tell us a little bit more about Digital Promise and their role in this partnership? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, Digital Promise, uh, for those of you that don't know Digital Promise, they, they really have, I mean, they've been uh, around sort of building um, sort of a national league of innovative schools. Um, they've, they've, they've done, you know, they've done so many different projects and efforts at sort of really uh, building a, a, a nationwide uh, sort of community of, of educational leaders, um, of cohorts of, of teachers that are really investing. And then they also have a, a strong research capacity. And so this is, you know, kind of the partner that kind of, uh, you know, held our fists in the fire and kind of, you know, we're, we're reviewing our internal reports, helping us to kind of make solid decisions, informing our theorization around thinking about classroom orchestration, around what it meant to do time savings. And so, um, you know, and a lot of a lot of what we do, especially in the learning sciences, are these these kind of closed loop design cycles. And so, you know, we want to get the product and we want to get our measures to the right research project, right? So you don't want to you don't want to launch at the beginning because you 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 don't have that high confidence yet. And so uh, working with Digital Promise really you know brought a lot of teacher voices to the table, um, uh, you know strong uh, high quality uh, research voices, and and helped us to to really refine refine our, our processes moving forward. And so and so I think I think that in and of itself has been one of the innovations that we've we've put forward for this product. Uh, you know from this uh, this relationship is really you know, what does it mean to be uh, working at the intersection of this research practice industry partnership? Wonderful. I will Emily. also say just briefly about Digital Promise, they also come with a long history of collaborating with industry partners. Um, and so they also kind of knew that landscape um, and were able to just advise and partner with us um, as we kind of walked through it. Okay, fantastic. So now we know like the group that embarked on this journey, we're going to learn and we're going to research together. Yes, we talked about the importance of research generally in education technology. But why was it important that we research Merlin and Merlin Mines artificial intelligence approach to the classroom? Like why did this deserve its own research project? What was unique about this? Well, I mean, to my knowledge, there's nothing comparable, right? And so, um, and like I said before, it's it's a wild proposition, right? <laughs> to bring AI into the classroom, first of all, to bring voice assisted technology, to do things that don't have a prior model, right? So it is, um, it, it is a, it's a radical break from what we know about classroom technologies. And then the other radical proposition is it's really a hub for the entire classroom, right? So you're, you're orchestrating all of the technologies and, you know, real life humans in the space over time. So, um, so how do you get that right? You know, 
you know, you know, just even, even what does that mean? Uh, you know, unlike Alexa, you've got to, you've got to then now orchestrate, you know, teacher and children voices and what activities, what has the, the highest value proposition for teachers. And a lot of times that was unexpected, right? Mm -hmm. You know, kind of at the beginning, probably we would have, we would have had a very different hypotheses than the features we see them using all the time now. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yep. uh, you know, Emily, what's, what struck you? Well, I mean, I think, uh, this part, this technology is one that as I talked to participants as they were kind of thinking about getting involved in, in our research project, many of them were afraid of this technology. There's a lot of fear and, um, you know, well-placed concern around bringing AI into the classroom because of data privacy, because of, you know, just, the idea that what happens in a classroom ought not always to be recorded and, and then like researchable later on, right? Um, and so the fact that your business model does not sell data was a huge, huge selling point for those participants. Um, that was, I mean, and once I got into classrooms, I actually found lots of these teachers had covert Google Homes or Alexas in their classroom that they were like, I've been secretly using this because it helps me so much. And I was like, well, that's amazing that we now have a device that you can use that gets you the benefit without all of the concerns about data privacy. For us, it's very exciting to have people that represent industry in the room for us having these conversations, right? Because at that point, it was hard. I mean, and people don't realize like the research started during COVID, right? So we met you guys before <laughs> COVID, then COVID happens. And it's like, how are we going to build this technology and test it and learn from teachers when we can't get into schools? And so I think there's another thing to be said for the ability for researchers and academics and former educators and current educators working with industry as the trusted go-between that in a time of chaos and uncertainty and COVID and everything else, and dealing with a product that many people were afraid of and weren't certain it was like legal to bring this into the classroom, we're able to trust you and say, oh, okay, now I see, now I see why this works. So I, I don't think we can underestimate how important that was in our development at that stage of the company, right? Yeah, that, that's wonderful to hear. And and I, you know, I, I think it, it, it's so true. It's so true that, it, you know, like, it, it, but you you can imagine, you know, as as researchers go into this, you know, we don't want to we don't really want to ruin all of our relationships with with schools either, right? So I think I think you know that that trust is really a two way street in terms of of having products that we believe in, companies, um, you know, that we feel like have really high and strong, uh, you know, capacity to design to respond to the teacher comments and in real time, right? right. You know, like there there was. Uh, there was always a product upgrade being pushed. There was always somebody being available for the teachers. We, we saw that time and time again, you know, in the, in the research reports, especially is that they were really, uh, to their knowledge, that was the very first time that they had, uh, you know, really been listened to, you know, and, wow. and that, that's a game changer really. And I, I think for ed tech companies that are listening, uh, you know, you, you really can't undersell that, you know, teachers really feel like they, they don't have a voice in the design of technology and the choice of what technologies enter their classroom. And, and so just really building the company very differently um, and, and future proofing it in a lot of ways. I think you've got a lot of insights that, to share to 
and just just the way that you work, not just in the the product innovation. I also do just want to put in a quick plug for uh, qualitative educational researchers. That is an area of training that often goes, I don't know, sort of underappreciated, which is that we develop very strong relationships with the participants um, in our research. Um, and so we're able to kind of like, we undertake explicit training in building trust and ethics and all of, you know, preserving that relationship um, intentionally. And so I think that in this case that proved to be really crucial yeah, yeah. And, and it didn't hurt that it was a voice activated technology, you know, back when all the classrooms were all the surfaces were being wiped down and, you know, the barriers <laughs> in all of the classrooms. So, uh, so that that really helped that really. Helped. <laughs> yeah, that actually let's let's segue that into what did we decide to research? Like, what were the research questions? What were we trying to learn here? What was our hypothesis on the value this product could bring into the classroom? Yeah, and that I, you know, I just wanted to kind of just talk a little bit about the methodology of how we got there. Because yeah. Part of it was the listening that was happening, you know, at Merlin Mind to like what what do administrators, what do teachers want, um, similar to over to Digital Promise, and then uh, you know, kind of our early findings from being in the classroom with the technology. What were we seeing? What were the safe bets to start to place, right? Mm. And so at that intersection, it really kind of boiled down to two things. Really, it was around techno stress. Uh, you know, in the pandemic, when you're rolling out all of these LMSs, you're introducing all sorts of new technology to solve problems. You know, there's a, a growing, uh, you know, really probably probably the height of techno stress happening and then failures of technology, right and left, limited, you know, kind of uh, support for those technologies. Um, so you, you have, a, um, you know, the educators and teachers just really, you know, so stressed out on, on the job uh, and, and the kids too. I mean, they had to learn so much. Um, and then the, the second, the second uh, kind of area that we, we thought we were starting to see was really a time savings, um, you know, and, and how did we, you know, we tried to operationalize that. And so in what ways were they able to spend time uh, in the classroom more efficiently? And for those of you that, that know teachers, this is a really um, important issue. Emily, Emily, definitely translate that for our audience. It's, it's, uh, it's not to be underestimated. Yeah. So, um, in terms of techno stress, it was actually in phase one of the research when we first started, um, you know, I think our goal was really just to see like, how does this product work and what, what are the, you know, constraints surrounding it? It was more uh, almost exploratory. And what we noticed because we happened to be implementing during perhaps the largest increase in tech use and education in our history, um, you know, the teachers that I saw were facilitating synchronous learning with half of their students on Zoom and half of their students in person. And if you can just, you know, reflect on every meeting that you've had during the pandemic over Zoom and how many times somebody is muted, somebody doesn't have their camera on, somebody's link isn't showing up properly, or, you know, you don't have access. Um, imagine that happening with, you know, 30 fourth graders um, and trying to troubleshoot that. And that's not the goal of that, of that interaction. You're trying to learn things. Yeah. Um, and so that's what we were observing. Um, and the stress levels were really, really high. 
Um, and we, time expenditures as well. Let's come back to time expenditure next. I actually want to ask about like techno stress as a word. First of all, like what does techno stress even mean <laughs> for those sure. that may not have heard that term before? And then I want to ask about how did it manifest before the pandemic? And then how do we believe it? Like, does it matter after the pandemic? Or was this like a unique to like, it was a problem in the pandemic, but you don't need Merlin and a digital assistant after the pandemic. Like talk about techno stress and what it means and why it's present before, after, during, and probably for a long time to come. Sure. I'm happy to, to take that one. So um, techno stress is actually a fairly old construct. Um, you know, the original uh, research on it was back in the early 2000s, late 90s. Um, and it came out of organizational psychology, which was really looking at how technology impacts people's job performance and, and feelings at work. Um, but recently, it started to be applied to educational spaces because, as we mentioned, there is just a huge proliferation of, you know, things to do and manage uh, related to technology in the classroom. And rightly so, you know, um, as we're preparing students to live in a world where this is the case, it makes absolute sense that we would also, you know, try to replicate that in, in educational spaces. Um, and so I can't speak too much to before the pandemic, except to say that it was sort of one of those things where it was loosely defined. We all knew it was happening. If you talk to teachers about this, it's one of those concepts where they're like, uh-huh, yes, yeah, yeah. thank you. Um, we can, yeah. I can just shed a little light on like what we had discovered before we got to you guys. Sure, so like, yeah. We'd been spending a few years looking at how could AI help in the classroom? And we had all this like, there's many, many different ways we could have brought AI into the classroom. We thought like we could build a learning app, we could build a math app, we could build a reading app. Like there's all these things we could have done with it. And we went into classrooms and we sat with teachers before COVID and we watched. And what we saw was, wow, they're spending a lot of time going back and forth to their computer, accessing a ton of different applications. A reading app, yes. a math app, a quiz app, a video, a, a presentation. And it was like almost this constant race around the room to go back and forth, back and forth while they're also paying attention to their students and all the applications and their students and the applications. And many times it included unplugging things, plugging things in, like rolling carts around the room. And we talked to the teachers and what they said was, man, don't give me another app. I have so many good apps. Just help me with the stuff I already have. And we thought about it and we said, huh, there's something interesting here around AI simplifying how they use all of those things. We didn't know the word techno stress. We weren't thinking of the term classroom orchestration. All we were thinking of was like, there's automation opportunity there. You could have the teacher focus on the things they're best at, eyes on students, connecting with them emotionally, and then instantly saying, hey, Merlin, start my presentation now. Okay, class, watch the video. Hey, Merlin, pause the presentation and open Google Drive. Like being able to do all of that stuff without after looking or touching or walking, we thought could have big impact before we ever saw COVID. Then COVID happened and we think it still matters after. But yeah, talk to me about like that insight, then the research and how those things kind of came together. Sure. It is a really wonderful feeling as a researcher because it, I have to say, rarely happens where when you say what you're researching to teachers, just in plain language, they're like, yes, thank you very much and keep it up. <laughs> because often there we experience a little bit of a disconnect with the academy and practitioners. And so... Um, you know, techno stress is really just this idea that there are 
uh, you know, technology introduces all of these different sort of stressful factors into your life um, in, that you have to negotiate in order to accomplish your goals. Um, and so, you know, everything from switching inputs uh, between a, you know, peripheral, like a document camera or, you know, and your projector to, uh, like you said, having to physically touch your computer so that you can, you know, negotiate some sort of issue that that has arisen in the middle of your lesson. These are common everyday occurrences for teachers. Right, right. Yeah, and I, all of this, imp you know, like it really significantly impacts your overall work productivity, right? And for and especially in schools, what that means is that the kids don't have time to, you know, to learn. Mm -hmm. um, so all of these are distractors and noise, and they 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 also have the consequence of of distracting the teacher, and so that that train of thought, um, that actually they can't follow the you know the question or you know what they would like to have see happen in the school day, you know, kind of kind of happening there. But I, I think Levi, you're also hinting at like one of the strong value propositions for why to bring in researchers, right, is that we, we talk about this as a problem of practice, right, and what we try to do with our orientation, this is not every researcher out there, but these are learning scientists that we are oriented towards not inventing our own problems to research, right, but really starting with a true problem of practice, just like you started with your, your industry insights, is that we want to start with that, and then we want to give that language, and that language we want to shore up with something that's existing in the literature, and in this case we're talking about techno stress but then that gives us a, a methodology it gives us other industries it gives us comparison points and now all of a sudden you can start to do something really powerful right we didn't just invent this ourselves but uh building on that legacy uh, of research so now let's talk about the research what did we learn as we dug in and looked at merlin assisting teachers does it have an impact on techno stress does it have an impact on time savings like maybe just start walking us through the findings and and what we learned during this. Well, and I I also want I want the audience to know you know this is this is an audacious time to run any type of research you know project right I mean a most researchers are shut out of schools right you know so um, so to get to get people to say yes in this moment is you know you've got to have something that is going to help. Right, you know. Right. Otherwise, uh, you know, all of Chicago public schools shut down. They're like, "Stop it! Don't even come near us." You know, researchers. Yep. Um, you know, so large swaths of the country, and uh, you know, it was it was relatively easy for us to get these doors to open because they're like, "Yeah, actually, that could really help this." You know, like so there was a strong value proposition there, um, you know, to be able to open up that door, but the. Um, you know, we also launched, you know, right when we thought things were kind of, the coast was clear, right? Last fall. Um, so this is like November. This is, this, this is like the second phase of the research because we'd been researching for a year. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. And that, yeah, the first phase of the research was really qualitative inquiry, like, like, Emily had said, and that just means that we're in the classroom, we're seeing what works, what doesn't work, what are people using most often, uh, you know, how do we translate sort of the data security, um, you know, uh, different ways of, of, okay, you know, we're fending questions, but ultimately we got to think about different onboarding processes, you know, sort of working out all of those kinks. And, and you know, sometimes we only think about the product there, but it really is, you know, how are you going to get questions and what are the onboarding materials? What are the questions that are going to be asked? And so, um, you know, there was a really nice, um, 
you know, kind of process that started to develop there where we were reviewing a lot of those things. And at first, maybe we fielded some of those questions and then what was working, we, we kind of passed over uh, to your team to kind of continue to develop, you know, as you were thinking about scaling. Um, and then the second phase of the research was really doubling down on some of these bets. It was like, actually, you know, the product's working consistently in classrooms. Uh, you know, the teachers are reporting that they don't ever want to part with their devices, you know, now like we got something right and that that's when to pull the trigger to kind of say hey can we can we start to provide evidence around uh, the efficacy of the product right and that's where we developed this quasi experimental study. Um, and, and that's the, you know, you start to get to sort of the gold and silver standards of, of the research industry. Um, that's where you want to start to build for scale and so the quasi experimental allowed us to. Um, really start to look at what was happening in um, the symphony classrooms compared to a matched control set. And so, you know, you could just imagine this is, uh, you know, two different schools that could be matched or two different classrooms that are roughly the same. Um, servicing the same demographics. And, you know, I think this is also the strength of the company as you were kind of thinking about, you know, where do you want to start to move the needle? You really were committed to working in public schools, right? Um, with high needs learners. And we didn't want to be looking um, at, you know, private schools or very exceptional kinds of settings for this research. And so, so that became really important too, as, as we started uh, thinking about this. So we, we shored up that methodology. We, we had a survey battery to kind of go out, you know, we kind of, uh, uh, you know, pre-tested folks at the beginning, uh, you know, in, in November at some point. And then, you know, the holidays happen, which is a high stress time of year, as we all know, right? Um, and then we kind of thought, you know, post-tests would kind of come back in, in in January or February. And along comes the Omicron outbreak. And it was probably one of the most stressful time periods uh, in, you know, educational history. Uh, maybe even topped, you know, the the initial outbreak, um, you know, in, in 2020. And so the, um, you know, so how crazy is it to go back in and, and do, um, you know, seven weeks later and do a post-test and expect to see any reductions in stress, right? Mm. But it's also the perfect experiment, right? So is this is this a device that only helps in the best of times? Or is this a device that helps even in the worst of times? Because we, you know, I, th I think we've all kind of um, can grow to expect now that we, we have to expect the unexpected. So mm -hmm. how do we how do we uh, future proof our classrooms and really give teachers the support. Um, you know, we've got, you know, educators and, and nurses, you know, a lot of these are the frontline workers that are exposed um, every day to the pandemic, um, you're rippling, you know, so-and-so's out and I got to get, get homework ready. And, you know, all of these things that are just uh, accumulating. So, so how do we, how do we leverage AI and technology to start to start to, you know, tinker at some of the, at the edges of some of these problems, right? So we were, over the moon when we got these results back, right? I mean, you know, as a researcher, I, I you know, the data is just going to say what it's going to say, right? You know, and um, especially this early, we're not even sure if we have the right instruments yet. You know, sometimes you got to worry about that. Um, we're not sure if the pandemic just threw us for a loop, you know. Um, so, but what we found was that, uh, you know, close to two thirds of the teachers reported a reduction. This is in the symphony classrooms, uh, a reduction of techno stress in that seven week period. And then so that's, that, so that's in period. so that's in the classrooms that are teachers using Merlin, the digital assistant to help them. Yes. Keep keep yep. going. 
Yeah. So teachers using Merlin and, and they, um, and, and techno stress is this large um, kind of umbrella and there's different kind of areas within that. And so we actually saw, you know, significant declines in techno stress across a variety of areas um, in that in that short period um, and significantly more so than what what you're seeing in, in your uh, control group as well. Um, Emily, you want to talk a little bit more about like why you think that might have, you know, what, what was, uh, what were some of the key features of the product that probably uh, started to contribute to that techno stress reduction? At one of the sites um, where we did, we also followed up with some qualitative observations and interviewing. Um, when we installed, or by we, when Merlin Mind installed the uh, symphony classroom in these uh, in these spaces. What we found was that in order to switch inputs between peripherals in this particular setup, they had to open a whiteboard <laughs> and go. The switch to do that was behind a whiteboard, uh, and so what it meant was that. And I, you know, interviewed all of the participants and every single one of them said, well, if I can't configure my technology to be accessible through, they were running it through a doc cam, basically using their doc cam as their hub for all of their, you know, input switching. Um, if I can't do it through the doc cam, I don't use it. And you know, you think about that, it's like you're missing just a huge amount of capability there um, by having just a random placement of the input switch behind several layers of actual wall that you have to go and get it out. Um, and so, you know, just that small thing, which just, you know, you think about that decision to put that that input panel there, right? Like that was made years and years ago by someone who was really far removed from actual teaching and learning. And what Symphony Classroom did is it allowed them to remove all of those steps, going to the wall, opening it, finding the right button to push, waiting for you know the HDMI input to pick up, and then going back to your computer and by the way, what was I even doing? I mean, like in that time, that's when <laughs> students are off task. That's when students are, you know, uh, like what is going on? Um, and so, you know, I watched teachers eliminate that challenge from their day. Um, and, you know, the quotes that they come back with are like, you know, I would recommend this. It saves me milliseconds, and that is so important. Um, you know, some of the one of the quotes was like, "You know, I would recommend Symphony Classroom. We need it." Um, you know, they're very every single person that I interviewed and in, uh, said, "Please do not take this from me," mm -hmm. um, which <laughs> I was like are you sure? <laughs> like, you know, as a researcher, that's a very, that's a suspicious result there. Uh, and so, um, but, you know, even upon my second observation, like, it was really clear that after seven weeks, even of the study, they were 
and the device and, was part of their practice. Yeah, so. So Emily, in that in that example you gave, like, so if I if they wanted to switch to something that was on the on the whiteboard or the interactive whiteboard, what what would they have to do with Merlin? Uh, all they have to do is have a remote. They don't even have to say, "Hey, Merlin," with the remote. They just say, uh, "Switch to HDMI one." And there's a new update where you can say, "Switch to my laptop." You can name your HDMI sources. Um, and so, you know, it's getting easier and easier all the time. I mean, and it was, we're talking about, you know, probably a two minute task over, you know, as opposed to um, three seconds with yeah. Symphony Classroom. And, and you know, you know how it is, like, you know, we've all been on those Zoom calls and you just, you know, you can't get your yourself unmuted or whatever it is. And even if it's 20 seconds, the stress load that's there and the distraction, you're not thinking about, about what Johnny, the, the important question that Johnny asked you 20 seconds ago, you're just sweating bullets to try to like make this lesson happen before the end of the period and, and before yes. these other things is you've got other things that are then waiting and, you know, like, so it just compiles on that, mm. on that that stress, especially when you have large numbers of, of, you know, young minds just sort of waiting for that to happen. And so, you know, when we say techno stress, it's really, it's really just that, that amount of fluidity in the environment, the ability to kind of have a, a train of thought um, and, you know, just the exciting things you can do with that, that time save. And so you mentioned, uh, we actually saw real statistical evidence that this saves time and that it decreases stress. I think it was in the report, it says 14% decrease in techno stress after just seven weeks. Right. Would you expect to see that with a new product that early? Like, why is that unusual? <laughs> no, no. I mean, you know, I was kind of prepared, especially when we picked this instrumentation to kind of be like, well, you know, let's test them again in another seven weeks and you know, the pandemic will be over. They'll be used to using a product. So, you know, you've got, you're looking at a product that has a quick uh, adoption rate, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of products are kind of like stick with us, you know, a year or two. And then, you know, when I, when I started using Canvas, for example, it, the time savings was not in the first year of use. I had to build out my class. I've got to do these things. Um, it definitely wasn't in the first year that I built my online class, but in subsequent readministration, now I just mod this, right? Mm. And so it saves, it saves me a lot of time unless I have to go for a new build, right? So that there is frequently um, with innovative new products, there is frequently like a, a large startup cost. And you saw that with smart boards, you saw that with, um, you know, lots of it, they require a lot of professional development. And I'm talking days, not hours, right? Um, you know, repeated kind of upskilling that, you know, a lot of times people are using these parts of the product and not moving over here. Um, so part of part of the AI technology, part of what, what you've built is um, an intuitive technology, right? Mm. And, and that is that, you know, from a, um, an HCI standpoint, that's what we're looking for, right? We're looking for something that um, that does that, but you wouldn't see these kinds of findings, um, especially in this, this small of a period. And you know, I, I wouldn't, you know, we, we haven't started to look at that dosage effect, but it, it may even happen earlier, right? You know, right. we've probably been able to go in within two weeks and seeing that, that techno stress uh, decrease. And we don't know what will happen in a year's time or two years time once you really, you know, you know all of the different functions that you might not even be using. Mm. Um, to be able to, to save you time in other ways as well. Okay, so our first question or research question was, can you decrease stress if you have a digital assistant helping a teacher and making it easier for them to use technology? And we were shocked, I guess, at 
how true that was, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. How, how do you explain that? Why do you think that is? What is it about AI and a digital assistant that just kind of is intuitive, that, that fits into the way teachers work today? It's so humanizing to have, you know, a, a, you know, a backup, somebody to be helping you in, you know, I, I you know, I personify uh, Merlin here, but, you know, to have an entity that's really there with you, um, you know, in the classroom, right, that's not coming in or coming out or training you to do what you're doing differently, but, but really to do the things that you were hoping to accomplish with ease and insight. And, you know, we haven't talked about some of the other features, but um, the timer feature, for example, is very popular. Um, and, uh, you know, just being able to kind of set a time to kind of bring the group back together uh, so that, you know, you're not having to mark time, you know, especially as, as a teacher, you might have to, you know, respond to the principal, you might have to, you know, go pull, go pull Maria out of the classroom to go get checked for COVID, you know, and you're kind of, you don't realize that you only meant to give them three minutes, but 10 minutes had elapsed. Mm. And so you're just having, having a, um, a partner in crime, I think is, is just really important. Emily, what, what are some of the other things that you were starting to see? Um, I think it's, you know, my bias is towards uh, project-based and student-centered pedagogies. So um, what I noticed is that when you could reduce the cognitive load, what we saw in the qualitative data is that teachers started to wonder what else was possible. And so that's a really great um indicator that they're about to make a big switch in their teaching. Um, because once a teacher gets curious about something, like teacher, people who become teachers are like obsessed with learning. Um, and that that's really what drives them. And so what you want is for a teacher to feel like they are constantly looking at like the next horizon that they're that they're going to go after. Um, we saw that uh, pretty consistently in the qualitative data as well, that once teachers felt like a couple of tasks or just a tiny reduction in, in complication in their day was enough for them to say, well, I wonder what else I could do with the device. And I also wonder what else is possible for my students? Might I be able to make a switch from more teacher-centered pedagogies and kind of tap down presenter, assessor type things to uh, you know, using the tools to facilitate like authentic inquiry with my students. Um, yeah, I, I think you know, the, the quantitative data also backs this up too. But I, you know, one thing we haven't touched on that's huge, you know, so we can, we can talk about professional development a lot. And, you know, oftentimes it comes down to like, you know, leave the desk, leave the sage on the stage model and, you know, become the guide by the side, right? And, and that's easy to say, right? But if your technology does not support that movement, uh, you are, you know, you're arrested to the front of the room and you're, you know, you're leaving, you know, those likely kids in the back of the room to, uh, to, to their own devices and, you know, to feel like they're not really invited into the classroom community and to be off task and, and to not notice. And, and you're not looking at the, you know, what the kids are doing on the computer or kind of noticing, you know, kind of maybe the unique insight and being able to build on that. And so, so really being, you know, Merlin does not tether them further to the computer, but allows them to use the whole space of the classroom and to move around. And that, that 
you know, for the project-based learning, for the, the kind of things that we know about high quality teaching and learning, that that's a huge freedom that's then afforded. And so we, we can't, we can't, um, we can't, uh, you know, kind of underscore that enough, but, but there, there's some quantitative data I want to talk about too. So, so that kind of takes us into, it saved time. And we can talk about like evidence on just how much time it saved and how impressive it is that it saved time. But then what they did with that time, right? Because you could do different things with time you saved, right? What did we learn from this? You guys are kind of teasing it now, but like maybe just talk about it did save time. That's a big deal. And then what people did with the time. Right, right. Yeah, there's two areas, right? And uh, you can kind of see them, you know, the, the instrumentation we had is kind of like, how do, how do they spend their day? And so, you know, roughly, um, you know, folks have kind of looked at four areas. And so you can kind of think about it. A teacher might spend time on administrative tasks, on managing the technology, on uh, maintaining discipline, right? And so that things don't go awry in the classroom and teaching and learning. And these things are all, they're all interrelated. Right. Mm. So when you shift time from one thing and, and importance of one thing, you kind of free up time. And in general, we want to see more time on teaching and learning, you know, teachers, administrators, parents, we, we all want to see more time on that. And these other things can then become the distractor that keeps these other things from happening. So what you start to see in the, um, uh, you know, in the, uh, the Merlin portfolio is that a huge reductions, a significant reduction in administrative tasks, right? Um, you know, you can imagine just being able to, uh, you know, even say, hey, call the front desk or ask, uh, you know, ask the technology folks to come in or, um, you know, especially because, you know, it's working across the classrooms, being able to, to communicate there, but a, but a significant reduction in administrative tasks while significant increases are happening in teaching and learning. And so uh, at the same time, and, and remember, this is the seven week during this pandemic period, you're seeing your control teachers spend significantly more time on, um, you know, on, uh, on maintaining discipline and, and more time being spent on managing technology, right? And so, uh, and you can see that that Merlin had no, you know, you might, you know, the teachers were worried at the beginning, like, well, is this gonna create discipline problems? Are my kids gonna try to run Merlin? And the answer was no, there was no impact on discipline, right? Then, and, and even just to minimize the new disciplinary problems that were emerging in these other classrooms, that's quite cool. And, and no impacts on increased burdens on managing technology, which we, we hinted at before, but to see it in the data is just really amazing. Yeah, and you know, just kind of again backfilling with the qualitative data, what you see is that even you know, I'm I'm a nerd uh, about time, especially uh, because the idea of whose timeline or whose perception of time matters in the classroom and how that comes to be constructed as truth is very interesting to me. I think students often perceive time really differently than teachers do, even though they're experiencing the same thing. And so when you, when you think about measuring time or saving time, right, it gets, it complicates that, okay, I know that that is not helpful. <laughs> for for the world but that's I am at the end of the day a researcher <laughs> um, <laughs> so all of that to say um, I'm really interested in the fact that teachers were reporting the perception of saving time whether or not you know I would go in as a researcher and say like you spent two seconds less than you did the last time I saw you is really sort of irrelevant because what I think they're saying is I felt 
as though I could focus more intently on teaching and learning rather than administrative tasks, rather than managing technology and maintaining discipline. I, I perceived that because we got more of the things related to teaching and learning done during the class time when I had somebody classroom there. Um, and that's, you know, whether or not it is actually saving minutes and seconds isn't actually isn't the issue the issue is whether or not you feel like you have the brain space to do what you know is right for kids yeah i think you might also ask what are they what are they reporting spending more time on right yes and and so we're seeing some really significant impacts uh, you know highly highly significant impacts on um that they're presenting tasks for which there is no obvious solution right and, you know, so that in November, they were presenting ta more tasks with obvious solutions, because that's easier, right? And then we'll, we're just all going to learn how to do this math problem in this, this predictable way. Um, and, and seven weeks later, they're able to, to do some of these things that are unbounded, right? They felt like they had time and, and resourcefulness to do that. Uh, they're also reporting that they ask uh, students to decide on their, or significantly more often uh, to decide on their own procedures for solving complex tasks. So not, uh, not telling kids how, you know, what to work on and how to work on it, but really kind of opening it up uh, for the, the complexity of, of learning and the processes to emerge. So really much higher quality uh, strategies around teaching and learning. And then lastly, you're also kind of seeing them say that they're, they're allowing students to use the ICT, uh, you know, the information and communication tools like laptops for projects or class work. And so you, you see lots of evidence that the teachers are using this time uh, to do the things that they weren't able to do uh, previously. And you hear this all the time from teachers is that, yeah, that would be great. I would love to offer this project. I would love to teach in this way. I just don't have time. I've got to, I've got to make sure that they perform well on the standardized test. And I've got, I've got to teach to what I know that they need to be tested on. So one of the fundamental beliefs of Merlin Mind, our company, was that teachers are amazing and teachers can teach. And if we get other stuff out of their way, more students are gonna learn more and be more successful in the world. Our ambitions are pretty big. It's gonna be a better place. We can help the whole world learn more, do more, be better. So what you're saying is, even though we weren't really looking for that as the outcome of this project, we're already seeing initial findings that if you free a teacher up and give them more time and make it easier for them to administer and teach, they can have they could teach in a higher level than like the kind of the kind of way they want to teach. Is that is that what you're saying? Absolutely, yes. absolutely. And I, I mean that, that again is such an audacious thing that when we met in 2019, I was like, hey, you know, but. <laughs> But really, it makes sense, right? I mean, that you start to see these things and, and that all of a sudden, if you do feel like you're not constrained on time, you don't have all of these behavior issues, all of these administrative tasks that are just you know, sucking the, the life out of your, your school day, now all of a sudden, what, what would you do with that time, right? And getting that time savings back uh, and, and sort of restoring the humanity to teaching is just so, so important. And what about... Is it just one grade level? Is it just one subject? Like, who does it work for? This works, I mean, it really isn't about grade level and subject area so much as about teaching style. Hmm. Um, so if you are interested in student-centered centered pedagogies, then this is going to help you, <laughs> uh, you know, free up 
uh, your ability to implement uh, that work. I think, you know, you could, we can think about applications from a kindergarten teacher who, you know, is uh, using Symphony Classroom to help mark time for reading and guided reading groups. We can think about a high school science teacher who has, you know, who is doing labs and can't be touching the, their computer, um, but needs to be able to use the tech to, you know, for uh, other purposes. Um, you know, yeah, we, a music teacher. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, it really is more about um, enabling hands-on learning in, yeah. in learning environments. So if that can work for any space, K, pre-K through adults, and, uh, you know. And we saw that in the research, correct? Like we looked across K to 12, across subjects, and the findings were similar. Like you're saving time, you're correct. decreasing stress. It doesn't matter what you're teaching, how old your students are, like this is helpful. Yeah, we thought we thought at the outset, you know, this is in 2020, we thought we thought we might be able to help you hone a product market fit of like, you know, is this for late elementary? Is this better for middle school, uh, high schoolers, you know, um, and uh, is this better for your techno savvy teachers or your less techno savvy teachers? Is there like a, you know, kind of a, a floor or a ceiling that we can advise? And the answer was no, we did not see any significant clustering. Uh, we saw teachers as happy in the art classroom as they were in the science classroom in, in kindergarten as well as sixth grade, right? So um, so I think you're, you're talking about a, a general use technology um, that has wide applications. So we, we were really happy. I mean, again, there's things that we hope for. We, you right. know, we can't determine, you know, as, as the researcher in the situation, but we hope that the design will hold up like this. You know, we get really excited to partner ourselves with, with technology that doesn't have that constraints. You know, that we don't, we don't want to have Merlin, you know, only in classrooms in the late elementary and then all of a sudden you know the the teachers and the and the students you know it, it no longer works for across that divide um so we were really delighted that the that the data um you know really spoke to that and, and the teachers testified to that that um that as well you mentioned there a comment about like maybe it would only work for the technology proficient teachers and maybe not the other ones did we did we see any evidence in the research that teachers that maybe are late adopters or afraid of technology also benefited from Merlin. Yeah, so one of uh, one of my favorite stories from this research is of a teacher I call Luis, um, who <laughs> upon interview said, you know, I actually don't want to do this. <laughs> I don't want to participate in this trial, but the rest of my team, my fifth grade team really wanted to. And so I'm going to do it. Um, and he ended up being randomized into the treatment group. So he was a, one of the first receivers of Symphony Classroom. Um, and so, but what he said is that he, first of all, it satisfied his desire to participate with his team, which is like really wonderful. Um, and second of all, he, you know, described himself really as a very reluctant user in the sorts of technologies that he was talking about using pre and during the pandemic. Um, he said, you know, I would really 
use a Google Doc once in a while, but that was about it. Um, and he even described during the pandemic that there was a time where he was um, teaching virtually, where he was, this, he had been teaching for 20 years. And he said, you know, I'm not, I was afraid I wasn't going to be able to do my job anymore um, because of that. So we would, we would characterize him as evasive uh, mm-hmm. towards technology, right? But what we saw is that even as an evasive user, he was able to, first of all, approach uh, use with Symphony Classroom. He undertook it and he turned it into this really interesting learning opportunity for him and his students, um, where his students uh, helped him to co-negotiate the technology in the classroom. And it, it turned into this space where that doesn't really happen very often in classrooms where the students got to share authentic expertise uh, with their teacher. Um, And in doing that, he was actually modeling learning more authentically than he might've otherwise done, right? Because most of the time teachers just teach things they already know. Um, And so for him to take that risk to model that risk in front of his students and then use his own vulnerability and be supported by Symphony Classroom um, while he was, you know, undertaking that. I mean, that's magic. That's the holy grail. So (laughs) what a a cool story. Yeah. And he wasn't alone, right? We also saw significant changes. You know, there's a widespread fear amongst educators that they're going to be replaced by technology, replaced by AI, something that's going to look like flashcards or the school of one, right? And, um, and that they're going to be outmoded by technology. And, and what we saw actually in this study is that that fear took a significant decline, right? Um, and so we saw over time that they, they felt like they weren't going to be replaced. They did not um, feel like it was too complex to understand so, you know, what, what a great, you know, kind of gateway into understanding what, what the positive role of AI could be in the future of the classroom. And again, it's got to be, it's got to be in the right hands of somebody who doesn't want to use AI to, to replace a teacher, right? Mm-hmm. And understands the intelligence that a teacher brings to teaching and learning, but really thinking about augmenting the teacher and not replacing them. And so, so I think that this, this is, I, I think, a really strong example and, and why, you know, the field needs to be led by exemplary, um, you know, products and models in this way so that, that that becomes the paradigm, not something that then replaces, you know, the, the human in the model, right? But it, but it shows us how we can augment and how we can, how we can actually help teachers to achieve what they would like to see and really help them to be at their best in the classroom. Oh, I love that. That is our ambition. We believe teachers can change the world and we're going to help them do it. <laughs> so one thing that we didn't touch on, we're, we're about done here. One the few last questions. Uh, you talked about how much impact this can have in the classroom, decreases stress, saves teachers time, allows them now to maybe teach with higher level teaching practices and approaches and pedagogy. Does it also potentially help them outside of the home with all of the stress and workload? Like, can it help them holistically as a human? Which sounds like a very audacious thing. Like, it's it could do everything for you, which is not what we're saying. But like, what came <laughs> out of the research here? 
Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, again, you know, as a researcher and you're just like seeing this data, you're just like, wow, okay, you know, like, this is just amazing. But yeah, I mean, that's exactly what we started to see is that the reports on, uh, again, techno stress is that if you're stressed about what happens in the next day is that you're going to prep a lot the night before. And so a lot of the items um, within the techno stress me uh, measure started to say uh, things like, I, you know, they felt like their personal life was being less invaded uh, by classroom technology. Uh, we were starting to see this, this, uh, you know, significant impact beyond the school day, you know, again, you know, who, who would be that crazy to throw in a, a question like that, you know, so that, that was just amazing. We wouldn't, we wouldn't even hypothesize, but, but it makes sense, right? If you feel like like, you know, what, you, what we're seeing is that they're able to improvise in the classroom, right? They're able to respond to things, they're able to tackle harder things, right? The things mm -hmm. they've always been wanting. And they're spending less time on the administrative work, which is having, you know, when a teacher gets ready for class, you have all of your tabs open, you, you've predetermined where the, where the conversation is going to go right? Um, you have these very tight windows of moving between things. And then you, you kind of get thrown a couple loops either, you know, from an oddball question coming from the kids or, you know, your administration kind of comes over the loudspeaker and asks for something, right? And so you, you, you're constantly juggling that kind of thing. And so you're a lot of teachers spend a lot of time prepping for the school day, you know, before or after school in their, in their break. I mean, their, their lunches are short. Uh, they really optimize. And so it, if you feel like things are going to succeed, you don't need to do all of that prep time. Right. Mm. And, and really start to, to hyper engineer the school day. But, but that also that engineering, what do you, I mean, you're going to take your best guesses and especially for seasoned teachers that have been there, you kind of know where, where things are going to go. But, um, but all of that a priori decision-making is not what we'd like to see in teachers. We want to see them in real time responding to what the kids are noticing, what's kind of emerging, being really present with the kids. And so, um, so that's what, you know, that's, that's part of what we're seeing, you know, that shift of really kind of being able uh, to be responsive in the moment. Wow. So let's end with kind of one last question then. So we're very excited about what we've learned from this because we've always believed that this technology belongs in every classroom in the world. We believe every teacher would benefit from having Merlin a digital assistant to help them as they teach that would free them up. It would allow them to have more impact on their students. And this is great for all of us. And it opens up opportunities to change and improve and do lots of things in the classroom. Maybe we didn't think was possible before, but we're obviously very biased, right? We've devoted our lives to this. We've been spending years and years doing this. We'd love to have kind of your perspective as independent outside researchers who lived through this with us for a few years. Like, what do you think about the future of this technology of digital assistance in the classroom of how it can help teachers and what do you hope comes out of this going forward? Oh, yes. I mean, it, you know, it, it is fun to be part of this chapter, right? I, 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 um, you know, sometimes we play this game of like imagining five to 10 years ahead and, and this is still in its infancy, right? You right. know, but again, when you have a, a base product and you've got, you've got that kind of strong market fit, you've got a real value add, right? That, that's not, um, not, not just, um, you know, it's not something that, that you're trying to sell teachers, but really, really meets them with where their needs are, right? You know, I, I really believe that the company will be highly successful, right? You know, and, and that you know, this, 
everything that we're seeing right now is that, that you've got that fit happening, that you're ready, you're ready for that scale. Um, and, and, you know, it's not just for teachers too. I think all of the tech companies, uh, teachers are able to use more of that technology that, you know, has already been sold and is sitting there in the classrooms and, and are more in an adventurous spirit to embark on it. Um, you know, we, we saw this year, a lot of things, you know, from engineering to, uh, to computer science getting pushed out because teachers don't feel like they have the time for it. And so they're doubling down on the three R's and, and uh, maybe even more just reading and writing it, you know, to be specific and, and moving this to the periphery. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of, of parties that will benefit, you know, from really rethinking, um, you know, what Merlin Mind could be doing in the classroom, you know, in, in the future. So, so thank you. And, uh, you know, thank you for making this, uh, this, audacious uh, idea a reality <laughs> we, we have a great team great founders a lot of people that, that have brought it here emily any any kind of thoughts on your end yeah i think you know anything that you can do to go after the administrative burden that comes along with following student interest and undertaking project-based learning in in classrooms is is the ticket it's it's the missing piece for us moving forward, I think, in our classrooms, but also in our workspaces where we are in this space where we want to, we, we have so many new technologies, the world is new every single day when we, when we wake up. We wanna be able to negotiate those and figure those out in real time. Um, and this allows teachers to do that. Um, with their students. So it, you know, it changes the power dynamics of whose knowledge counts in the classroom. It changes, um, you know, what it means to be a technology enhanced teacher and how you learn the technology um, in front of your students. Um, so it's not just the product, but, and I would even say it's your way of working. It's your development um, that you undertook um, and will continue to, I think. Um, moving forward. And, you know, teacher, our data says that teachers saw that, that it mattered. This was the first time for some of them that they'd ever been asked about what they need. So keep it up. Uh, you know, go do it over and over again. I hope it changes everything. Well, I want to say from the whole Merlin Mind team, all of our current customers and teachers working with, and hopefully every future person that benefits from Merlin. Thank you so much to Dr. Pepler, Dr. Schindler, to the Digital Promise team, to all the schools that participated in the research study, because you are our partners. And it was a phenomenal journey to work in the, like, in the dirt together. We were getting dirty and working through this and working through problems. And the whole time we felt, I think mutually, we all care about the outcome that this could have, that we really could help teachers. We really could then help students. And hopefully we see evidence of that. I don't think any of us expected to see so much evidence so soon. For us, it's thrilling and we wouldn't have been able to do this without you guys, <laughs> all of the wonderful people that you brought to bear on this journey that we're on. So we very, very much appreciate this. And we hope other startups can benefit just as much working with incredible researchers like you all. 
Yes, yes. I, I, I hope we can share share the, the learnings in terms of just these new ways of working. So yeah, thank you for, for inviting us uh, to be part of this journey. Uh, you know, there was a lot of trust in, in our team and, uh, and we, we really appreciate that. So thank you. Thank you. All right. I loved it. I learned a lot. Thank you. Until, <laughs> until our next research project together. Here we go. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, have a good one. Thank you guys. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Supervised Learning. Until next time, keep learning.